Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon on this day two of the World Cup of Soccer, which kicked off yesterday in Qatar. The host country had the day two itself, ended up losing its opener to Ecuador, the first time that a host country has lost the opening match of the World Cup, which some maybe see as some karma. Look, the World Cup is a massive global event, uh, a very rich sporting event. And so certainly countries uh, have their own reasons for wanting to host. Canada will be a part of this World Cup, of course, for the first time since 1986. But there is a, a dilemma here, I think, for some Canadian fans. The excitement of seeing our players on this global stage. But with the backdrop of a country with a very problematic human rights record playing host to this event. Is that something that can be reconciled? The joy of this sport but the very problematic politics that surround this. It's very unusual to have the World Cup happening in November. This is usually a summer event. Of course, it would be too dangerous to play uh, in the summer in a country like Qatar. Now, why was Qatar selected? Why was FIFA willing to overlook its human rights record? Why has FIFA turned a blind eye to how these stadiums were built with migrant labor, working under, uh, some have described it, modern-day slave conditions. A number of those workers who died in constructing these stadiums, the true number maybe we'll never know. It was an interesting piece uh, the other day in the Globe and Mail, the case against watching the World Cup. The headline, I love soccer, but I won't be watching the World Cup. The author, Declan Hill, an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven, lead of its Sports Integrity Center, also author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, and The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. Declan Hill, welcome to the program. Hey, Rob, thanks. It's always an honor to be on your program. Well, and, and likewise to have you here as a guest today. So, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm assuming then you're, you're sticking to that. We're, we're now to day two, as mentioned. Uh, you are not yeah, watching absolutely. this absolutely. Absolutely, brother. Um, look, just to make sure that all our listeners know, because I really like the way you laid out the uh, predicament in the in your introduction mm -hmm. there have been other countries that have had human rights uh, problems and hosted mega sports events you know china russia whatever but the reason why i'm particularly focused on this one is that a conservative estimate of the number of workers who've been killed to build the infrastructure of this world cup is 6500 so it just seems to me that in this case there's absolutely no way that I can say, well, it's a sporting event that happens to be taking part, you know, taking place in a problematic um, country. This is like, you know, watching a pyramid that some ancient Egyptian pharaoh built over the bones of his workers, you know. But we're living in 2022 now. This isn't ancient Egyptian time. Mm -hmm. This is 6,500 at least, at least workers have died to build this sporting tournament and i'm just like you know what 
I love soccer. I'm a massive supporter of the Canadian men's national team and our women's team. I have watched both of them in really dire situations over the last decades. I've been to them. I've seen them in the stadiums. I've done whatever I can as a proud Canadian. I wish them well, but this is not a tournament that I'm going to spend any time watching. I think people are still trying to make sense of how this country was selected to host this event. <laughs> what is the answer to that question? Uh, endemic corruption. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really difficult to overstate how corrupt the organization of FIFA was. And I'm not just saying that. These aren't just, you know, hyperbole words. When the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice moved in and arrested over 40 uh, senior FIFA and broadcasting rights executives in 2015, they eventually put them on trial at the Southern District Court in New York. And that's the court. That's the legal apparatus that does the five big mafia families, cases against the Russian mafia. And so the prosecutors came and said, you know, we spent years investigating FIFA. We think it's an organized crime group. And almost unbelievably, the judge looked at this and said, you know what? You're right. It does operate like an organized crime group. And here's the real shocker, Rob, for you and all our listeners, is the defense lawyers of these senior FIFA executives said, you know what? You're right. It is an organized crime group. It's just that our clients have to be innocent. You know, we were innocent people working in this field. That's how endemic the corruption was in FIFA. I mean, this is a really, really troubled organization. And then you have this autocratic Gulf country that has basically broken any and every rule that FIFA, you know, put up on paper for them to acquire it. Result, multitude human rights abuses and the deaths of over 6,500 people. Well, it's hard to see over the weekend. You know, FIFA had a $75 million deal with Budweiser to allow for Bud to be the exclusive beer seller at, at the games. And then uh, Qatar decides, what, two days before, uh, that they're going to ban. Uh, they're not going to allow alcohol yeah. sales at these games. So it's almost been some some humiliation for FIFA here, hasn't it? I, I, absolutely. And, and I want to say um, and, and make sure this is clear to all our listeners and viewers. Uh, who are Muslim. I have worked in Iraq. I have worked in Palestine and Turkey and Syria. And I have complete respect for the idea, hey, look, you're in an Islamic country. We don't want you to drink alcohol in public. It's a world event. It's a World Cup. This is part of the world. Sure. This is our society. Respect it. I'd be like, okay, that's cool. Really, you know, like, that's fine. What I find inappropriate is that the autocratic government of Qatar two days before the World Cup just breaks their promises and breaks their promises to two of the most powerful corporations in the world. One is FIFA and one is Budweiser. I mean, can you imagine the power and the arrogance of simply saying, you know what? We're going back on it. Forget about it. You know, we're, we're just breaking our word. And that is, the, that is the, the consistent track record of Qatar since it's acquired the World Cup. You know, it's promises. It makes all these great stuff on paper. But when reality comes in, they'll do whatever they want. It's quite a price tag in hosting the World Cup and, and building all of these stadiums. Two hundred and twenty billion dollars. Right? You know, even built one hundred and twenty billion dollars, Rob, and it's much more than a sporting tournament. This is real military power. Uh, you know, it seems counterintuitive that military power and a security establishment would be, would, would be secured with a World Cup. But five years ago, uh, Qatar was surrounded by the army of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they put a military uh, blockade around them. And thanks to their sports diplomacy strategy, 
Qatar was able to get the president of France to fly out to Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, and negotiate for that blockade to end. Now they have NATO troops guarding Qatar. Uh, it, is a, it is really uh, an announcement of Qatar's prominence on the global uh, stage. And you can see their rivals. Saudi Arabia is now negotiating to try and get a World Cup uh, hosting right for themselves. So is Egypt. So is Iran. So is their major political uh, rivals and enemies in that area. They've recognized, hey, Qatar has really pulled this off. So this transcends sport. It really does. It moves it right into the forefront of diplomacy. Right. So, so there's something to gain here. The, the kingdom is gaining something from this. It, it, it gains massive support and security. I mean, yeah. their nightmare was 1989 when Saddam Hussein evaded Kuwait and no one cared. And the Kuwaitis had to spend tens of millions of dollars in Washington mounting a public relations campaign to get people to care and send their sons and daughters to die for, for them to recover that, that country. Qatar looked at that. It's a similar oil, gas-rich state. Nobody really cares about it. And they're like, okay, we got to do something. So first of all, they moved into news broadcasting. They launched Al Jazeera. And then in the early 2000s, they said sport is the way to go. That is, if you want soft power in this world, um, we're going to get it. And, and I was talking about that, that, that blockade. To get the president of France, they paid 220 million euro for the most expensive soccer player in the world. They put him on this, you know, as the crown jewel of the Peru soccer team. You think that's expensive. That's only half the price of one Mirage fighter jump jet that they could have bought from the French. And that wouldn't have bought them 15 minutes of security against the Saudis. So there's power in sport. And as far as Qatar is concerned, that's why it's worth, you know, the track record of having blood and bones of the world's largest sporting tournament. Of course, uh, this is also a country where homosexuality is illegal. Um, and yes. any, any players Absolutely. or teams trying to call attention to that, uh, FIFA's, you know, threatened punishment. We saw teams back down from wearing the One Love armbands. Uh, so what about that side? <laughs> Like I mean, the, the track record of, to our brothers and sisters and the sexual minorities is appalling. There's a Human Rights Watch report downloadable on the Internet for anyone who wants to see this. It speaks about dungeons. Um, you know, people were brought in in September of this year, so less than six weeks ago, into an underground dungeon and beaten and humiliated. I mean, that, 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 that's the kind of stuff they were doing. Um, as far as the treatment of women, I mean, this is an awful case, but it's been replicated hundreds of times. There was a young Dutch tourist who was jailed for rape. I want to stress, she was not assaulting somebody sexually. She had been raped. She went to the Qatar police, reported it, and they immediately put her in jail for three months. Oh. Unfortunately... She was not alone. There were hundreds of cases. The United Nations has written a number of reports on the treatment of uh, women who've been sexually assaulted there. It's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. And then you tie in, as I said at the beginning of our interview, Rob, the fact that this world's largest sporting tournament, the stuff that we'll be watching, or excuse me, many people will be watching, I will not be, was built on the bones and blood of at least 6,500 people. Enough. You know, it's just not worth a soccer game, particularly, Rob, when you think of what all our sports fans who are listening and watching us subscribe to sports for, be it hockey, be it curling, figure skating, soccer, whatever your sport is, you believe in fair play. You believe in trying your absolute hardest. You don't believe in watching a sport where people have been killed to build the stadium and the infrastructure. It just isn't worth it. 
So this tournament will end. Uh, we'll, we'll turn our attention to 2026 when Canada, U.S. and Mexico will jointly host. Um, you know, the, some of these issues obviously will be much less present, but doesn't mean these, these problems go away, does it? No, I think, I, look, sadly at this moment, um, Saudi Arabia has woken up and gone, holy jumping, you know, our, our troublesome, pesky, irritating neighbor that's, you know, a fraction of our size has just pulled off a major geopolitical coup, right. and we've got to catch up with it. That's why they've moved into the fight game. That's why they're bankrolling UFC, MMA, heavyweight boxing. That's why they're working in uh, this new rival organization in professional golf, Live. They're really finally waking up to the power of sport, that sport can really bring them military and political power. So I think this is just the beginning, sadly. And that's why I'm making such a, uh, you know, taking such a strong stance. Like, it cannot be profitable for Qatar to do this and to build it on the bones and blood of thousands of people. Imagine your piece. It's up at theglobeandmail.com. Much more as well, declanhill.com. Declan, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Rob, it's always an honor. Thank you so much. Likewise. All the best. Uh, That is Declan Hill, Associate Professor of Investigations at the University of New Haven, lead of its Sports Integrity Center. He's the author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, as well as The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. We'll not be watching the World Cup for these reasons. And, and look, that 6,500, someone texted me, like, I get what, you know, what, what the guest is saying, but that's a shocking number. Where is this coming from? Well, for example, here's uh, a piece uh, in The Guardian uh, from last year. More than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup 10 years ago. The findings, compiled from government sources, mean an average of 12 migrant workers have died each week. Data from India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka revealed there were 5,927 deaths of migrant workers in the period from 2011 to 2020. Separately, data from Pakistan's embassy in Qatar revealed a further 824 deaths of Pakistani workers over that time frame. The total death toll is significant higher as these figures do not include deaths from a number of countries which sent large numbers of workers, including the Philippines and Kenya. So if anything, that might be undercounting the number. Eight stadiums they built for this event. This is a geographic area, not much larger than the Metro Dallas-Fort Worth area. That's how small this country is. Why were they awarded the World Cup? Why? I mean, that's, well, you heard the answer from Declan Hill. Is that all it is? Just flat-out corruption? Go back. Well, the federal government has certainly had some rather consequential policies when it comes to the media in this country. You know, the subsidies uh, directly to newspapers or legislation like Bill C-11, Bill C-18. All of this is ostensibly about trying to help the news media in this country uh, gain a solid footing in the years ahead. But has it actually accomplished that? You know, bad policy with a noble goal doesn't necessarily get you to that goal. And it's possible that bad policy may just be counterproductive to the goals you're pursuing here. There is need, obviously, for a strong, vibrant news media in this country. But it's not at all clear the government policies are getting us there. There's a new paper from the McDonald Laurier Institute on why a meaningful, positive, long-term national news media policy is both vital and urgent. 
You can read it for yourself at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. But joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author of the paper, Peter Menzies, an award-winning journalist, past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, former vice chair of the CRTC, and currently a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Peter, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, likewise, you know, like I alluded to in the introduction, I, I mean, obviously, we have seen many consequential policies from government in terms of intervention in uh, the media, in the digital realm. What is this all added up to, first of all, in your view? Uh, it's added up to a patchwork of generally reactive policies um, that sort of kind of lurch from one thing to the other. The one thing, one of the things I learned at the CRTC was. Anytime you do something, there's going to be a reaction somewhere. Um, and you should know what it's going to be before it happens, because otherwise there's unintended consequences. So if you give one guy a bunch of money and you don't give it to another guy, somebody wins and somebody loses. Is that your intention or not? Right. So what's been the consequence of the uh, policies we've enacted thus far? I mean, I, I think it sowed some some confusion and maybe even chaos at some level in terms of what this is all going to mean. But in terms of overall trust in the media, the viability uh, of the media, have we actually seen any positive change? Well, I think actually trust in the media is at an all-time low, and there are several studies showing that. I don't know how much of that is a consequence of COVID, but it's been a trend for years. And in Canada, it seems to be getting worse as government gets more involved in directly funding uh, for for news organizations. Primarily, it's been newspapers lately mm -hmm. um, who've obviously struggled through the uh, local journalism initiative and uh, the labor tax credit that they've given them. So people join the dots, um, and no matter how virtuous the newspapers claim to be or insist that they are, um, the, the consumers of that news raise an eyebrow when they see that sort of association. Well, as you write, all of this illustrates why a long-term national news media policy is not just necessary but vital and urgent. So what does a, a national news policy, a meaningful and effective one, look like? I think it's what, <laughs> well, that's my next paper. Um, <laughs> the the, the uh, uh, I think what we what needs to happen is that all the everything that's going on needs to be thrown on the table and sorted out, right? I mean, you've got the CRTC. Everybody who has a CRTC license, virtually everybody, has to do news. Uh, stations such as yourself, it's your specialty, but you've got competitors in your market who, for all I know, just want to play country music, and all their listeners want to do is hear country music, but they have to do news. Do we really have to do that? Right? Can't people just change the channel and go to you guys if they want news? For instance, uh, do we should we be giving the CBC 1.4 billion dollars in funding, and at the same time letting it compete with you guys and and with newspapers now too, uh, for advertisers? Is that fair? Right? Um, with, what you've got right now is a situation where the Globe and Mail is trying to sell subscriptions, but CBC is getting subsidized to give away the news for free. How's that supposed to work? So right. you end up subsidizing the Globe and Mail, and you just end up with this endless series of subsidies. So what you need to do is get everything together and try to build a sustainable framework that gets the, that the government sort of facilitates but doesn't fund it directly. Right. So you, you do see a, a role for government then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important for government. Sometimes the role for government 
when it comes to to industry uh, things is getting out of the way. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's finding out what are we doing. For instance, like I said, the CBC example. I mean, fine, have a publicly funded you know public broadcaster, but what we have right now is a publicly funded commercial broadcaster. That doesn't make any sense, right? So how can the government just stop somebody from doing something? So there's there's all kinds of ways. Government, of course, can can be useful. Um, it just chooses not to be sometimes. <laughs> You know, it's also weird because, you know, the CRTC has a role to play, at least when it comes to broadcasting, radio and television. It feels like part of what the government's doing is is almost, you know, making the problem worse by expanding the definition of what counts as, as media and trying to regulate even more than they're already trying to regulate right now and applying all of these different rules and, and regulations. I mean, is, is this going to end up making things worse? Well, particularly in a world where everything's more and more online, right? So the CRTC will be regulating everything that talks or moves. So audio audio and, and video, right? So whether it's a, um, you know, a, a YouTube clip or whatever, right? So they're in, they're in that business. But meanwhile, there are people doing print things. But are you going to be regulating podcasts and that sort of stuff? It's... It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to still have this sort of broadcasting framework to it. I mean, I've been a big fan for a long time. of We need a, a total reboot of how we look at communications. I mean, it's it's all about the Internet, right? It's it's all about online. It's I listen to the radio online. I only listen to it over the air when I'm in the car, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I listen to a lot of radio. Um, I, I read newspapers online. I watch video online, uh, you know. That's that's where the new world is. It's a, it's and we're still trying to think about it through a 1980s lens. Well, we we reference that that's C11 what the government's attempting to do when it comes to expanding some of the the regulation of online content. We've also got C18, which is supposed to be uh, some kind of a solution for. I guess more traditional media to try to extract some some dollars out of uh, big tech companies, uh, who are obviously right now themselves going through some major struggles. Do you do you see C eighteen as as a part of any kind of a solution here? No, I don't. I think C eighteen is a, a a terrible mess. Uh, it puts the CRTC in charge of overseeing the any agreements that are reached, you know, the mutually agreeable commercial agreements, which if the CRTC has to approve them, they aren't mutually agreeable commercial agreements. Phil, Philip Crawley, the publisher of the Globe and Mail, wrote last Saturday about the, some of those problems with it, about having a federal government regulator um, overseeing these commercial deals. And part of that gives the power, the CRTC uh takes a look at how the money from these deals is spent. Um, that, as I've put it, puts the state squarely in the newsrooms of the nation, and it doesn't belong there. Now, I mean, there are other options you can look at uh, for, for, for certainly taxing online companies that if they're not paying an appropriate uh, contribution to the economy, and setting up industrial sort of innovation funds and that sort of stuff that that could be useful. But, I mean, we have to accept that during a time of disruption, you're not going to be able to save every little weekly newspaper out there, right? Like, right. I mean, I'm sorry for those guys. And, I mean, I started my life at a weekly, my working life at a weekly right. newspaper, and I'm very fond of them, but it's over, you know? Like, it's it, the world has changed, and it's not coming back. And you can't make it 
So, but you can adapt to it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, all change isn't necessarily bad. There is going to be evolution. And and through all of that, yes, there is going to be some turmoil, maybe even some pain. But ultimately, there's still the possibility here for a a thriving media ecosystem in Canada. And ultimately, that's, I think, what everybody wants. I, I guess part of this paper is to warn, though, that bad public policy probably isn't going to get us there. No. It never will. And, and I think that's a lot of the problem. Um, I mean, this current government started off with, you know, some really bright ideas seven years ago. It talked about, you know, an innovation. You know, we, we want to stimulate innovation and that sort of stuff. And, and particularly in the communications field, it's been, I mean, th- these things are just being directed to please lobbyists for certain groups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's become all political. And that's not good policy. It really, really isn't. You know, like the it is, the job of a government is to govern in the best interests of everyone, not to create policies that please, you know, certain the Toronto Star or the CBC or you know the Canadian Association of Broadcasters or whoever it is. It's it's to actually build good policy, and that everybody can thrive, hopefully, or flourish, and or. If it doesn't suit you, you're going to have to adapt to it. Absolutely. Much more is mentioned. This paper, it's online at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Peter, thanks so much for the insight. Appreciate making some time for us here today. Always uh, grateful to talk to you, Rob. Thanks. Good luck. Appreciate it. There you go. Peter Menzies, uh, Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, former Vice Chair of the CRTC, former Editor-in-Chief of the Calgary Herald, and his thoughts on how government policy toward the media might not be helping the situation, but a smarter approach could. Alberta is the largest place in the world with a zero-tolerance policy towards rats. To maintain this rat-free status, the province employs a team of pest control officers known as the Rat Patrol. I have conversations all the time with people who are skeptical about the fact that we're rat-free. Rats do get in. We have no way of keeping them out or from coming into the province. But when they do, we eradicate them. Yeah, no messing around. (laughs) That's what they do. Uh, It is a a unique status uh, for Alberta, a rat-free status. And it's something we almost take for granted. Like I think for Albertans who go to uh, other cities elsewhere and encounter rats, it's very jarring. And we're a little surprised to learn, like, this is pretty common almost everywhere else. But this is something we've taken very seriously as a province for a very long time. And we don't mess around. And I think a lot of outsiders are surprised uh, to know the extent to which Alberta goes to keep rats out. In fact, it's been more than seven decades uh, since we, we implemented this approach. Well, it's the subject of a fascinating new documentary film. It's called Living Without Menace, screening this week as part of the Calgary Underground Film Festival. Uh, you can see it, uh, and in fact, you'll be able to uh, meet as well. Uh, Our next guest, director Ted Stenson, is going to be there this Saturday, 2.15 in the afternoon at the Globe Cinema. More at calgaryundergroundfilm.org. But joining us on the line here this afternoon is the director of Living Without Menace, Ted Stenson. Joins us on the line here. Ted, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, First of all, what got you interested in in the subject of Alberta's rat-free status and Alberta's rat patrol? Yeah, I mean, I think just as an Albertan, you know, learning a little bit about this program and sort of hearing, you know, this urban myth that Alberta's rat-free and that we have this 
thing called the Rat Patrol. Um, you know, I was just really curious about it, and you know, the more I sort of looked into it, the more fascinating it became. Like I say, I think we sort of take it for granted. How how unique is Alberta? How rare is this kind of an approach to dealing with rats? I mean, it, it we literally are the only inhabited part of the world that does not have an established rat population. Um, you know, I think that people find that really hard to believe, but, you know, when you look into it, there are some pretty interesting reasons why, why that is the case. And, um, you know, even though some people are sort of skeptical about that claim, I, I do think it's pretty, um, pretty accurate. And, uh, you know, it is, it is an amazing fact that Alberta, you know, has, has been able to sort of maintain that for so long. So let's, let's go back then. What was the reason for this? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons that Alberta was able to, or is able to be rat-free and was able to, to, to do this back in the 50s was that rats, you know, Alberta was actually kind of the last inhabited part of the world for rats to show up over land. Um, so because the, you know, slower development um, or colonization of the prairie provinces, there just wasn't the, the population density for rats to really kind of migrate from the East Coast. Um, and they couldn't come over the Rocky Mountains. So it was 1950 when they actually showed up over land for the first time um, on the Saskatchewan border. So at that point, you know, Alberta was... You know, it was, I think, in the post-war period and people were more comfortable with kind of big government programs and, um, you know, it just the timing in a way was fortuitous. So, you know, when, when that happened, the Alberta government acted really swiftly and uh, took it really seriously as a threat, you know, to the economy and to human health as well. Is it an overreaction in any way? Like, you know, have have we taken this too seriously? I mean, it depends how you feel about rats. But, you know, certainly there are people that, you know, um, like to have rats as pets. And in Alberta, that is also illegal. Um, but if you just look at it from, you know, a purely economic standpoint, it's absolutely worth it. Like rats cause incredible amounts of damage. Um, you know, and Alberta spends like, you know, the, the budget for this program is really small. It's like a quarter of a million dollars or something. Um, and honestly, it probably, it, I, you could probably easily estimate it, the savings in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it's not a stretch to say. So, I mean, from that perspective, it absolutely is a huge, huge benefit. And there's also, you know, the health benefit that, Albertans don't have to worry about some of the diseases that rats are pretty prolific in spreading. So, you know, from that angle, I think it, it wasn't an overreaction at all. It was, I think we were just lucky that we, you know, were able, that rats were up here so late that we kind of were able to, to deal with it. Because, um, yeah, in a way, we were sort of the, the only place that could really conduct an experiment like this. Whenever I think Rat Patrol, I think of an episode of The Simpsons where Springfield has the Bear Patrol and they've got these people in uniform and they get the cars with sirens and aircraft flying around, like taking it all very seriously. So that's almost what I picture. But like, I don't think we have cars with like rats in the circle with the line through it driving around the province. But what is the Rat Patrol? I mean, there are actually some of those vehicles out there. But, you know, it's it's mainly 
on the Saskatchewan border, really. That's kind of the the, the main area of uh, surveillance. So, I mean, you know, it's certainly in Calgary or Edmonton, you wouldn't really see that um, unless, the, you know, somebody reported a rat. But there, there are, you know, semi-annual, um, like, patrols that happen on the Saskatchewan border. Um, but, you know, I think especially now, like, there's so few infestations that it really isn't, you know, a big presence and it's not something people would see. Um, but, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there were there was a lot of rat activity. And so, you know, back then, I think it might have been a little more, um, you know, in the public eye but um, or conspicuous. But, you know, now, I mean, it, it is quite amazing. Like, we've had years recently where there's been no infestations at all. Um, so the threat is definitely, you know, pretty diminished um, from what it was like a few decades before. Right. You also, you know, explore what's happening globally, because as we talked about earlier, Alberta is kind of unique in a way. But we are seeing other countries, other jurisdictions now looking at ways that they can be rat free. But are they going about it in a different way? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that there are some modern, you know, rat eradication efforts like New Zealand is the biggest um, and you know the sort of motivation for them is totally different um, you know for Alberta in the 50s it was much more focused on like protecting the you know agriculture um, sector and and you know protecting human health but um, in New Zealand they um, the sort of main reason that they're so keen on doing this is to, you know, protect some of these native bird species like the kiwi, um, some of these flightless birds that they have that are really vulnerable to rats. So for them, it's much more sort of, um, you know, environmental motivation and, um, you know, that that's what's sort of pushing the program. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it is interesting to see because, you know, as far as, I can tell from what research I've done, you know, New Zealand is kind of the first place to attempt something um, on that scale. Like, you know, Alberta is the only place really that is rat-free, and as far as I can tell, the only place that's really even tried to maintain a rat-free status. Very interesting. We mentioned the film. It's called Living Without Menace. Screens this Saturday, part of the Calgary Underground Film Festival. You'll be on hand for a Q&A afterward. More detail, calgaryundergroundfilm.org. Ted, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. All the best. That's uh, Ted Stinson, director of Living Without Menace. Kind of an interesting look at you know where the whole rat patrol idea came from and why it's stuck around since. Probably isn't going anywhere either. Like, this is, this is baked in. This isn't something you're going to hear in an election campaign saying, we're going to get rid of this. This is just what Alberta does. It's what we've always done. And maybe there's good reason for it. It's interesting to see the conversations happening in other countries about this. I guess we did it first, right? Anyway, so if you want to uh, learn more, as mentioned in the film, it's called Living Without Menace. Screens this Saturday afternoon. More details at calgaryundergroundfilm.org. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.